Welcome to Pop Unlock. I am Landry Ayers, and as hard as it may be, I promise to our audience I will not do any of my very, very poor impressions on the show today, even though it would be oh so fun because today we are taking a trip down to Arlen, Texas to talk Mike Judge's classic animated series, King of the Hill. Joining me today to discuss the benefits of propane and propane accessories are co-founder of Feminists for Liberty, Kat Murdy. Thanks for having me. And a first-time guest on the show, we are so happy to have editor-at-large at Reason, Nick Gillespie. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Please, says Punch, to be here. An interesting sort of thought experiment that I like to propose when whenever King of the Hill comes up with people I haven't uh, talked about it with before is the question of what would Hank Hill have done during the 2016 election? Uh, you know, it exposes a lot of the assumptions we have about the kind of character he is and the place that this show is set in. And a lot of the other characters sort of intersect with the imagined storylines that we dream up when we think about the moral quandary that Hank Hill would have to go through in order to decide who to vote for in that particular election. So I, I pose that question to you two as well as we get started. What would Hank have done as the 2016 election was happening? You know, you've got Hillary and you've got Donald Trump. And what would happen in the 2020 election, you think, after the four years of Trump having been president? Landry, if I may, and I want to, I really hope to hell that you were named after Tom Landry, who's also the namesake of the middle school in Arlen, Texas. Uh, I was due on Super Bowl Sunday. All right. And, uh, you know, Tom Landry, by the way, is one of the great loser Super Bowl coaches. I mean, he did get one, but it's like <laughs> he's, he's like a hair's breadth away from being Marv Levy. Uh, you know, a real yeah, high performance loser. I think my parents m must have just been fans of men who wear fedoras all the time or yeah, something like that. Especially on the football field. Yeah. Yes, of course. Libertarianism, Landry. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you might. Well, first off, and you, of course, elided the fact that, uh, you know, there was a there was a you know fascinating alternative candidate in 2016 named Gary Johnson, a Western two term Western state governor that I think Hank would have toyed with voting for, uh, but then would have been like, oh, you know, he's a little too, you know, high all the time. Um, I my sense of this uh, and we can get into the reasons why I think. I think that Hank Hill would have voted for Trump in 2016 because he wanted something different. Uh, and I think the the real reveal is I think that he would have voted for Obama in the spirit of hope and change in 2012. And he would have been disappointed by Obama and hence goes with Trump. And then he would have been disappointed with Trump. And I don't know that he would have voted for uh, Biden. Uh, I think he might have voted for Joe Jorgensen uh, because she... Seems a kind of motherly Peggy Hill esque character, and I mean that in all of the ambivalent ways that you could take that. Can you walk me through that line of thinking really quick? Like, what what was it that you think would have made Hank an Obama voter? Um, and and how do we go from that point on? Because to me, that is a that's a, a big sort of inflection point for the type of choices you think he might make. Well, you know, I think you got to bring it back to uh, you know, Hank, you know, King of the Hill is ultimately a Texas exceptionalism show. I mean, it does not take place in the United States as much as it takes place in Texas, 
And this is a state you guys have much deeper histories with Texas than I do, having been uh, raised there. I lived in Huntsville, Texas, the center of the, you know, uh, uh, where the death chamber is, the center of the Texas Department of Corrections. Um, And that locates, you know, that's one of, you know, a great identity source for Texas, that it has this overly, you know, uh, determined and powerful correction system. You know, put uh, Texas has put more people to death you know, in any given year than like all of the other states put together for like 10 years. Um, and I think, uh, you know, so what, what I'm getting at is uh, Hank would have been fed up with George W. Bush. He would have obviously hated George H.W. Bush as a fake Texan. He would have been okay with W. And then he would have been like, you are terrible and you are centralizing everything in Washington. Because I think in a lot of ways, what, what King of the Hill is ultimately about is not a broad decentralization, but a skepticism of centralized power, whether it's corporate power, whether it's political power, you know, megalomart is a problem. It's both necessary and good for the community, but it's also a problem. I think Hank would have gone through seven stages of grief with George W. Bush and having to come reckon with the fact that between LBJ, H.W. Bush, and W. Bush, Texas has an unblemished record of shitty presidents. Well, and he would have liked LBJ enough to name his dog Ladybird. Right. Well, no, but Ladybird, not LBJ, right? You know, because Ladybird is ineffectual. But I, you know, and I think he would have been a uh, an Obama supporter because he would have grudgingly wanted something new and different, and he would have been repulsed by the Republican Party and how it acted under W. Bush, which was to agglomerate power, to centralize it, and to make the government bigger and bigger, really, and. Uh, and I think he would have been fed up with that. And he would, have, you know, he would not have voted for Hillary Clinton. She is kind of the incarnation of many of the things that he seems to rail against, which is a feminized culture, somebody who is constantly telling other people what to do uh, and, and locating meaning in D.C. or outside of local communities. So I think he would have gone with Trump and then he would have been like, oh, what a jackass. Right. He because Trump is too crude. And and a and a blowhard, right? Trump didn't deliver enough on the things that he said he was going to do. So I think he'll would have, I, you know, where he lands in twenty twenty. That's a good question. I actually think something very different from Nick here. I think that the default assumption you look at Hank Hill, he's you know a middle aged guy, small town Texas, fairly personally conservative. You would see him be like, okay, well he's clearly a Republican. He's going to vote for Trump. And I actually don't think that he would be. I think that he is a never Trumper. And it's Hank Hill hates vulgarity. And Hank Hill, you know, you kind of see his character uh, develop throughout the series. He really cares about what he sees as um, bad behavior towards women, whether it's his wife, Peggy, Mm -hmm. whether it's Luann. 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 He's very protective of Luann. He's very protective. I mean, at some point, he steps up for his colleague who he finds out is a sex worker and steps up against her pimp. Um, he's He dislikes, he has a troubled relationship with his dad uh, for a number of reasons, but in part because he doesn't like the way that he treats his stepmom slash Hank's uh, kindergarten classmate. He's just, he would not, he wouldn't have liked Trump. He would have liked, he would have wanted to vote Republican, I think, but he would have not liked Trump, both because he's a New Yorker, but also because he's vulgar and he didn't like the way that he talked. He didn't like the way he treated women. Um, so I think he's a never Trumper. I think Dale Gribble 
is full on MAGA hat, like talking about Hillary's emails, has all the conspiracy theories. And then I kind of see Bill Jotrieve uh, struggling between the two. Yeah, because he he wants to wear the hat. He wants to be cool like Dale. But he also he looks up to Hank Hill. He wants to be Hank. He, Hank is his hero. Right. So I think he's kind of pulled between the two. Boomhauer I'm seeing is either just not voting at all or like he's going to, you know, I could see him going Trump. I could see him even voting Hillary or maybe he's the LP. Oh, I, I think Boomhauer is a total guard job, a Gary Johnson. Yeah, yeah because I he's, can see it. you know, he's I actually minimal uh, government and he's lifestyle liberation. And, and you can hear him say, like, oh, bake the damn cake. Right. He would have been there, you know, like, oh, what, what, you know? yeah, so. I could see Boomhauer, you know, in his little uh, tiger stripe speedo is voting yeah, for Gary Johnson. How I Peggy Hill is going to be Hillary Clinton hard. Right. Peggy Hill is Hillary Clinton's base. Right. She's she's a Texas woman. She's a Montana woman. Um, she wouldn't have liked certain parts of Hillary Clinton, but she is the woman who wants to back Hillary Clinton because she's a female candidate, not she's for any a vagina centric voter. Right. Yeah, right? she is. Yeah. She is. I mean, I, that brings me back to the episode where she's studying, uh, where she has to be the uh, sex ed substitute teacher. Like that is her struggle in this whole episode. You're going to see uh, Nancy, uh, Nancy Gribble, Dale's wife. I think she's voting Trump and she's going to shame uh, she's going to be shaming Peggy because Peggy wants to support Hillary Clinton. And, uh, you know, Luann's off there voting for the Green Party or whatever minority communist candidate she can write in. Who is uh, who is John Redcorn voting for? John Redcorn. I could see him kind of coming out against both candidates. Yeah. A principled non-voter. I could see him again. I, I want to see the cast go mostly for Gary Johnson in 2016. <laughs> I could I see him maybe going Gary Johnson, but I don't it's, know if he's yeah. going to. Sure. I actually think in 2020, Hank Hill might look back and then vote for Trump because Trump. he doesn't like uh, he doesn't like a lot of the vulgarity and those kinds of things. But he's going to say, well, he was good for the economy. He was good for propane. Yeah. Hank is that's a propane true. voter. <laughs> See that? Uh, yeah, that's why I think he would have been so disappointed. Like I think that Hank is in that middle where it's like he wants, he has hope and change, and he's constantly disappointed. So he would be lurching towards whoever offered, you know, the alternative of what just happened. And then that's where I think in 2020, you know, this is it's just too much. Where you have the major parties have swapped in and out of, you know, the presidency and out of Congress, and they've just been terrible. And I think he would have pulled the switch for uh, Joe Jorgensen then, just as a, as the first protest vote. Because Hank is, you know, he's very conventional. Uh, he's individualistic and idiosyncratic, but he is very normal. And I think that's where his limit would be. I think Hank and Luann are the two candidates who are sort of the the people that the Libertarian Party wants to persuade and is constantly struggling to get across, right? Luann, because she wants change in a very different way. She's kind of attracted to these radical ideas, et cetera, but she's a little wishy-washy on what exactly she supports. You know, she's, she's not super ideological, but she, you could get a Libertarian vote out of Luann. And Hank Hill is much more this like 
uh, just stay out of my business, leave me alone to my lawn and my beer and my buddies. And, you know, that's that's what libertarians kind of want. Right. And he's you know, he's going to be pulled into the Republican Party because he is personally a conservative, but he's not a bigot. He's not he doesn't like big government. And, you know, fundamentally, not at all. Like, he's he doesn't like the idea of radicalism. But I think he likes the idea of just leave me alone. Right. I think it's interesting because 2020 really complicates it. When it was just the 2016 election, I feel like you could come to a more conclusive answer. Um, but then when you get to 2020, the, the disappointment of Donald Trump. Sadly, right? you're speaking for the entire country, right? Like if history <laughs> had ended in 2016, we could be like, okay, you know, whatever. Yeah, you know, certainly. Now. But uh, I, there's a lot of ways that this could go. I do think Hank would might feel a, I wouldn't call it duty, but the the draw of voting for Trump, but would be turned off by the vulgarity. I think the sort of austere, reserved nature that he exhibits, and the fact that yeah, the fact that Trump is like a a new, he's a Yankee, he's a New Yorker, so you can't you can't support that by any means, but. It, it would but be who's like, he running against? He's right, running against a, a fake New Yorker. Well, here's right? what I'll say. Here's yeah. what I'll say. It's not Hillary Clinton that he votes for because – and that's the real tension of the imagined storyline I have in my head is he goes in and he's like, I don't like any of these candidates. He's thought about Gary Johnson, but I could see it being like Boomhauer coming to him and being like – and saying something and trying to persuade him. And Hank having some pithy, you know, offhanded comment about throwing away your vote and how we have a duty right. and and it's a waste. And so the real American you know, flag in the background. That he, he's yeah. not right. a litter bug, you know, so why exactly. would you throw away your vote? Right. Right. But he would be like, well, what am I going to do then? And it's, you know, him deciding. And it would come down to he could either write in Ronald Reagan like somebody did, right. you know, with with the electoral vote, right. he would just be like, it's it's symbolic for me. It's about my character and my values. Or if part of the tension is uh, is Peggy trying to convince him to do the right thing and she's pushing him to do what she thinks is right and, and to vote for Hillary, it would get to the very end and you wouldn't see who he votes for. But you see him check the box and he comes home and you can Peggy's like, well, what did you end up deciding? What did you do? And he said, well, I voted for the only woman that I think is qualified for the job. And she's like, oh, I'm so proud of you, Hank. And then he goes, I voted for you, Peggy. Nah, and he I would know. vote for Peggy Hill for president. And it would be the same as, you know, throwing it away. But it would be him, you know, reinforcing his sort of uh, support, support for her for and thinking. Yeah. Yes. So that, that's what I, I see. Think there's, I think there's going to be another element there, right? I think it's also Khan. Khan, his name is going to be a big Hillary Clinton fan and is going to be using that uh, to I think, annoy. Yeah. I think I think he would. I, I think, think he would Khan be doing is it total to Trump, Trump bait, though, because he's a, he's a troll and he you know he wants to make money. I think he identifies with Trump as you know the gold plated entrepreneur. I could see um, that too. I could see that too. I don't know. I could I could see it going other way because I can also yeah. see a whole story arc where Hank is be annoyed by Khan, who's using hillary clinton just to irritate yeah, beat up on the rednecks uh-huh beat up on the yeah, rednecks and then so hank feels like he has to support trump for that reason but he doesn't like him and he doesn't want to support him and then maybe at the end of the day con votes for trump 
Yeah. Oh, I can definitely see Khan voting for. Trump. I would. It's I funny. would love to see. You know that in the booth, like you, all of them have their their public commitments, but then all of them would actually be voting for the other person in you know in the secrecy of the ballot booth. Mm-hmm. You see that that like conflict yeah. going on, and there'd be the the tense climax of the episode of zooming in on everyone's eyes as they're beginning to sort of decide what they really, really want, and the the sort of breaking tension of them walking out, and at the end of the day, all being a part of the same community and sort of resuming their lives, uh, sort of with the the same mundanity that they experience every single day, and it ends with them drinking beer in the alley behind the house, just saying, "Yep." I mean, one of the things that I find interesting, you know, and I, I love King of the Hill when it when it debuted in 1997. I was living in Huntsville, Texas, uh, which is, you know, a, a about 80 miles north of Houston. It's a small town. It's a prison town, a university town. My ex-wife was teaching at Sam Houston State and I had moved from L.A. So I'm like the twig boy, you know, the uh, bureaucratic <laughs> eunuch who shows up in, in the first episode and various other episodes to kind of bedevil Hank with, you know, uh, uh, you know, governmental overreach. Um, but it, you know, the, there's something about the show that captures how, you know, government matters and Hank and the, the universe there is very invested in kind of public space and doing things as a community, but also there's so much tension, but ultimately it is that Arlen is going to have to take care of Arlen's problems. Um, and that, you know, the, even even if you go to Austin, that's already a distant capital. Austin is that's big kind of, government, which is yeah, how Texans right. actually feel. Right. Sure. But even yeah. as and this for me was one of the th- you know, I so I was moving there from uh, L.A. I had started at Reason in 93, uh, you know, moved to Texas in 97. And I was like, OK, great. I am going to go to a state of rugged individualists where everybody <laughs> is kind of a small government person. And I was like, holy shit, like Texas, it's two forms of big government. Right. And it was, you know, George Bush was governor at the time, but it's like there's a Republican conservative big government thing that just wants to plow huge piles of land, you know, ground into big things. And, uh, you know, and then there's a Democratic version of it. And I was so kind of disappointed, but I feel like Hank kind of embodies that Texan tension between being an individualist, being self-reliant, but also being really invested in kind of communal identity and to a certain degree, big government, but not one that, you know, is then dictating every little procedure that you do in your office. So it's a, it's a conflict that I think is broadly representative of where most Americans are. Texas, especially because it's geographically situated really at the nexus of the West and the South. I find you have this like old South traditional legacy going on there. It's just on the cusp, but it also because of its independent sort of lone star identity of being the only recognized place. And it's on the cusp of the West. And it's yes. also a border state. It's, you know, yes. it's, but I, I want to, and just to uh, hopefully get under your guys' skin, but certainly any listeners who are from Texas. It's really important to know that, you know, Texas fought for independence in order to maintain slavery. Right. And which oh, comes absolutely. up in an episode. And like, that's the conundrum. And in a weird way, you know, Texas, by most demographic accounts, is going to overtake California sometime around 2050 as the most populous state. You know, that's when it will become the kind of central cultural myth-making entity of the U.S. in the way that New York State had been until California replaced, and then California will be replaced by Texas, not Florida. 
um, because it's bigger. But, you know, that tension, which runs through so much of American, you know, cultural mythmaking and identity, national identity is so marbled throughout Texas. It's, um, you know, it's, it's going to be exciting and it'll have a new accent, but we're going to be dealing with a lot of the same problems. And I think part of that is, you know, the South was the ultimate big government state. The Confederacy was an incredibly repressive authoritarian regime for, you know, whites, right. uh, obviously for black. human liberty. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and so like, whew, this is going to be, you know, and I, I think this is one of the reasons I love King of the Hill and it just, it's, it doesn't resolve these things. It just kind of, it's like scenario planning. Every episode was about, okay, here are all these things going on in the culture that are at odds with each other and how, if you are a good faith person and a good faith citizen, and this takes place in a wonderfully kind, ultimately loving universe. But it's like, how do you, how do you deal That's with it? What the show is meant to do, though. The show is not meant to be a political show. Mike Judge even said that. It's a show about populism, but it's mm. not a show about politics, right? And I think that it's pretty reflective of life in Texas. So I, I grew up in in the area that uh, Arlen, Texas was based on. Um, it was based on essentially an amalgamation of Garland, Texas and Richardson, Texas. I grew up, which are suburbs of Dallas. I grew up in Dallas. I graduated from Richardson High School in Richardson, Texas. Um, and I grew you up- You pledge allegiance to Don Meredith and Troy Aikman. We did have to say the Texas Pledge every day. Yeah. We did have to say the Texas Pledge. <laughs> I refuse to say the pledge all the way through school because I don't like <laughs> pledge things. Yeah, we oh, have yeah. to in quotes, yeah. <laughs> Kat, what was it like being a, I mean, it's also, you know, because da the Dallas-Fort Worth area is like so international and cosmopolitan, but it's also like growing up as an ethnic minority, right? Well, so that's kind of, that's quite interesting, right? So like, I always sort of related a little bit to Connie, uh, you know, because she's, she's that Asian girl. She's the uh, children of immigrants. My, my parents are not Con uh, or Min. Thankfully, I guess they're much more likable people, I think. So they got into but a I'm good sure. country club. <laughs> <laughs> no, no country clubs in Dallas for us, unfortunately. Yeah. But um, but yeah, like, I mean, I definitely always related to Connie uh, with that show and the, the show itself. Growing up watching it, I loved it because it was a parody of the world around me. The people that I knew were exactly like the people in that show, the, the types of conflicts. That's what was happening around me all the time, including kind of like there's this casual racism that happens a lot of times uh, with with the you know, I'm not Laotian, I'm Indian, but the yeah. same thing with these folks. Get my where, bags, Mr. Khan. So yeah, that or, you know, when they first now. meet uh, when when they first move in, when the Susan phones first move in and the hill's going to uh greet them and i think hank hill says so are you chinese or japanese and he's like oh we're laotian he's like oh okay so is that chinese or japanese and you know uh they're not doing it to be hateful they just don't know any better um which was sort of similar folks would always bring us people who spoke a language that they didn't speak that wasn't English or Spanish, and they would bring them to our house and tell us, okay, translate. It's like, I, I don't know what language they're speaking. <laughs> Not one I know. <laughs> but, you know, so that was very, uh, so I loved the show. I thought it was great. And then I moved to California, and I learned other people like the show, and I was shocked. So I was like, why would you like a show about Richardson, Texas? What do you have? What is this? And 
thing is, is that it's a very, it's like a slice of life show and it's just very realistic. And it's the way that these characters interact. I think that that speaks to people, even if that's not them, even if, you know, Luann Platter's name is not a funny joke to them because they grew up going to Luby's and getting the Luann Platter. I, when I tell you, Cat, that it, I just got that joke after all these years. I'm, I'm like the like when you said Luby's, I was like the Luan Platter. I'm so dumb. I can't believe it because like you, you best and believe we're sides in a dessert. Oh my gosh, you love the Luan Platter and all the blue hairs are out there, and you gotta join them. It's oh my gosh, Luby's. I gotta tell you, and you know, uh, one of the biggest uh, mass shootings in American history was at a Luby's, right? Uh, outside of Killeen, Texas, or in Killeen, Texas. And after eating there, I kind of understand the motivation of the shooter. It's a oh, terrible right. place. Yes. <laughs> Too much jello. <laughs> I, I will say, Kat, it's interesting that you really enjoyed it um, like when you were younger and you, because you were like seeing it all around you. Like, and this is the world that I live in. And I was right. and, at, like, these kinds of conversations, these kind of like, the, the conversations about things like sex ed or about Cinco de Mayo or. You know, those kinds of things like the people with the couch drinking the beer in the alleyway and talking about lawn care like that. Those were my neighbors. Right. And and Nick, you liked it because you had come from somewhere else. And like you were obviously with this different lens looking at the show and being like, well, oh, they're and- capturing it. Whereas I grew up in this, you know, very similar town, also in North Texas, uh, Grapevine. I'm in Tarrant County. I'm on the other side of the airport. Um so I'm growing up with this very, very similar lifestyle, but I'm, for some reason, I saw the show and was like, why would I want to watch a show that's just my life every single day? Like, there, it was so realistic that I was like, this is not exciting to me. I think there's a difference here. And it's that, like I said, I related to Connie. Sure, so, absolutely. Like, I was kind of I related to Connie and I saw it as Luann was the kind of girl that I wished I was. I mean, hopefully less less dumb, but I could you know, you'd want to like grow up to be like Nancy Gribble, but like <laughs> yeah, but it was like this is so I was also always looking at it through this lens of like a little bit reserved like this is not my culture. This is what I'm growing up right. in and observing it through that. And so for me it was kind of like, oh yeah, this is the show gets it they're seeing it right. the same way i'm seeing this there's a bit of a, a bit of an a sort of outsider perspective going on there like not quite fitting in to something larger even if you have just as much claim to it as the the people that lived there whereas you know me coming from like a bobby hill like yeah. kind of place were you a bobby hill something wasn't right with you i you know my dad didn't ever say it quite out loud to me that way but that i think there was an undercurrent of that there and uh with both my brother and i i think to an extent those boys weren't right uh but but luckily they were loving and supportive uh in a way that hank hill can be exactly beautiful you know and i said this as a parent i mean one of the great dynamics of the show and i think my older son was three years old or four years old when it came out but like you know, each of the main kids, so it's, um, um, you know, Bobby, uh, Connie, and, um, and Joseph are all problem children somehow. They're atypical, and they represent, you know, conflicts to their parents in profound ways, but they're also totally identifiable because they all feel out of sorts. And 
I came I to say yeah. they're problem children because well, aren't all children kind of problem children. Absolutely. For this absolutely. <laughs> and I, you know, Kat, I know you have a kid. So like, yeah, you know this, but that's what's so beautiful about it is. And, and ultimately they are loved by their parents. I choke up even thinking about when Dale, who obviously somewhere, you know, in the insecticide soaked brain of his, he knows that Joseph is not his child, but he, uh, he loves said him. It. He said several times yeah. he thinks he loves him. Yeah, that he's the he's the child of alien, right? But and he loves him all the more. It's like it's so beautiful. Um, I came to King of the Hill as a huge Mike Judge fan from Beavis and Butthead, and my reading of Beavis and Butthead on MTV was, you know, it was a show that was teaching us as cable and as the internet and as like the information age came upon us and. Beavis and Butthead ultimately was a show about how do you consume and critique slick images and slick information that, you know, was coming in the form of music videos, but it was a tutorial on how to live in like the information age. Um, you and just that's made one of the me reasons. want to go watch Beavis and Butthead again. Yeah, it's I always fantastic. hate it I don't like vulgarity, but yeah. uh, it's, no, I love it's, it, it, I love Daria. <laughs> It really made, uh, you know, it, it was it was didactic in all in the best ways that popular can, uh, popular culture can be. It like teaches you a method of how to, you know, kind of understand things. So I kind of brought that to King of the Hill, and I think in a way that's what the show was doing. It was like scenario after scenario of like if you are a kind person, but you are beset with all of these contradictions of like bigness versus individualism, you know, collective identity versus. Uh, you know, a marginal identity, uh, you know, when you don't feel comfortable in your own skin or, you know, in your community, like, how do you deal with that? And, you know, and that's one of the functions, I think, of King of the Hill, which was it gave us all ways of kind of just adjudicating these everyday kind of conflicts in, in a way that was ultimately kind of resolved to be nice to each other. That really is, you know, ultimately the message of the of the show, which I think is is actually deeply profound not that different than, than South Park or even Family Guy in a lot of ways. These are all profoundly family-based shows, um, you know, that take place ultimately, no matter how crass they may be, in a loving universe. Well, and they're always coming back to these kind of moral lessons. Like, it's not, it's not like a Bible show, right? Like, they're not mm -hmm. trying to hit you over the head with the morality, but there is a clear morality. And there's Luann's major babies. It's not yeah, major the major babies, babies. but it's, yeah. right. it's something it, better it, than that. Yeah. Right. It's a, and it's something that like Hank Hill is struggling with these moral questions throughout the whole show. You know, we started off talking about how he would vote and that's like, that seems that fits like it would be an episode because it's exactly the type of thing that Hank Hill struggles with throughout. Even if it's, you know, at the beginning struggling with the role of Luann in the family or, all these other things, he's constantly being exposed to things that, you know, he kind of in his head thinks are immoral or wrong. And then he's learning like, well, you know, I still want to be a loving, good human. And here's how I'm going to deal with it. And yeah, I think that I think that's what makes the show good. I, you know, uh, one of the episodes, if I can just throw this out there, uh, which I've read is Mike Judge's favorite. It comes from the first or second season. Um, and it's it's called Junkie Business. Uh, and this gets to a kind of libertarian flavor. The sh I, I don't. I don't think Mike. Mike Judge may be a libertarian populist, but I don't even know that his politics go. You know that he's interested That's in deep. politics at that level. Mm -hmm. But um, it's when Hank hires a new guy, and he basically hires him not because of his resume, but because he uh, knows a lot about the Dallas Cowboys. And the guy turns out to be uh, named Leon Petard, and he turns out to be a junkie. 
and he gets protection under the Americans with Disabilities Act, which famously George H.W. W. Bush signed into law. It was a big signature achievement in 1990. This came out in 1998. And then like everybody in the everybody at Strickland Propane starts to say, well, I have a I have a disability, too, et cetera. And it's this great thing where Hank is a good guy and he wants to give people the benefit of the doubt, but he also doesn't want to put up with bullshit. But this is where, you know, a kind of edict from on far, you know, on high comes down and then it ends up protecting somebody who's acting in bad faith and it creates a kind of viral phenomenon within the office where nothing gets done. And to me, that's one of the paradigmatic, you know, examples of what the show is about. Um, because Hank, again, is not, he's not mean, he's not nasty, but he also, he just explodes because this is he's unworkable. A guy who cares about getting things done. I think one of my yeah. favorite Hank Hill quotes is, there's nothing, there's nothing sexier than a man with a nine to five job. Like right. that is Hank Hill. He <laughs> believes like you have stuff, you get it done, you don't complain about it. And I think that's also like, that's a type of old Texas attitude too, that kind of carries yeah. through. Yeah. Why would you smoke weed when you could just mow a lawn? One of the other things that I really enjoyed about the show um, is that it is, you know, it was, it was on from 1997 to 2009. And so it bridges this weird gap where after the Cold War, you know, in the 90s, we had escaped history and all of that kind of stuff, which is kind of great. And then 9-11 happens. And, you know, in the 21st century, has just been a clusterfuck. But, you know, the the aughts were a, a roller coaster of a decade. And King of the Hill you know, kind of um, bridges all of that. And it, it, but it's also showing a culture and transition. So like, uh, I think Kat is right that Hank exemplifies a certain type of positive Texas manhood, but he's so different than his father and his father, you know, yeah. Cotton Hill, who is, you know, the, the World War II vet who, you know, the Japs blew his shins off and he killed 50 men. And he's, it just a complete jackass. He has a couple of moments of tenderness and kindness, but generally he is something to be avoided. And everybody knows that. And Hank is so much of a better person and a better father and a better worker than his father. It's kind of great to see the historical continuity that the show does through all of its, you know, references to stuff that is just wonderful, but is disappearing in real time, but also showing how things have changed and things can change for the better. Well, I think uh, his relationship with his father is one of the big moral struggles for Hank because Hank hates who Cotton Hill is as, is as the person, not only because Cotton yeah. Hill treats him really poorly, he's a terrible mm -hmm. father, but he also hates just the kind of like hateful, angry, aggressive, bigoted man he is. He mistreats Peggy, who's, a, you know, Hank's big treasure. He can't yeah. stand Hank's wife. Being, yeah, Hank's wife, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, Indeed. all of these things, he yeah. hates everything about him. And yet Hank has this idea that he needs to respect him both because he's his father and because he's his uh, because he's a military veteran. And then you kind of see like that's also a struggle with his mom's. Um, his mom gets remarried a couple times and Hank has that same struggle because these are men that he actually likes and finds to be to have that strong moral core. And yet they don't have those same outward uh you know stamps they're not actually his father they're not they're not veterans um you know they're they're the types of people that I, that if he saw on paper he would think he wouldn't like and you know it comes down to at the core they're just better people and hank is a much better person than cotton ever will be
Are there any other lessons that we can learn from Hank as the central character? Because he, while not a total stand-in for, you know, who every person who watches the show is going to be like some protagonists are, he's certainly the one that we're supposed to be rooting for and the one who we experience the world through his eyes 90% of the time. And we, we talked about the theme of kindness and community and and coming together at the end of the day and his sort of at least attempt at a positive spin on masculinity uh, in his community. Is there anything else that we could learn from him, whether it's from things that he exemplifies in a positive way or maybe even mistakes that he's made, um, whether it's, you know, the way that he handles his anger or the way that he runs his business, it's Strickland propane, et cetera. What else do you make of what we can take away from Hank Hill well, at the end of the day? Well, so one, th- one thing that I think, so the show is actually most likely going to be making a comeback in uh, in the next year or two. They've announced that they're working on another uh, another rendition of King of the Hill. It's going to be an older version of it. Um, and I think, you know, at this point, our country is so terribly polarized uh, that having a character like Hank Hill, who is a conservative, traditionalist kind of guy, he's very traditional masculinity and he's just a good kind person who's able to work with lots of different people who's able to you know be a pillar of his community no matter what that community is and the kinds of people that they are and all the different things that they represent you know i i think that that hopefully will sort of influence the the pop culture the the community that we see around us in america which is really at a point where we're not like that. Uh, you know, it's very polarized. People don't want to interact with anyone um, on either side of it. They're not open to that kind of person being a good person. And they're also, in, you know, the the idea of conservatism as people see it now is certainly not Hank's Hill, Hank Hill's conservatism. And so, you know, I do think that art influences culture. And I hope that this show comes back that it's just as good as it always has been. And I also hope that it gets just as popular and is able to kind of shift people back into a more harmonious um, and hopefully more positive interactions than, than we've been seeing the last several years. I, I do think that uh, within Hank, there is a, a serious critique of the type of person he is, though, too. And so, you know, you mentioned, like, how does he deal with his anger? And, you know, he doesn't deal with it very well. And he has medical problems throughout because of that. And he... But he grows a little bit, you know, skeptical of yoga and of even stretching because somehow that seems, you know, a little bit, you know, Greenwich Villagey or something like that. But he ultimately embraces Bobby working out with Luann and Peggy. Yeah. Yeah. And he, you know, he I mean, there's a a thing where, you know, his uh, his x-rays where, you know, because he's been eating meat his whole life, his colon is completely clogged. Um, And, you know. So there's a critique of who he is and how he, you know, the limitations of him. Um, I also think, and this will be interesting, I'm, I'm skeptical. This this is not the first time that a new King of the Hill has been announced. There have been similar things like this for a while. So I hope it happens. I would love to see it. But I'm, I'm you know, reserved, uh, you know, I have my doubts for a while. But also there's there's an episode where Hank realizes that he has been getting screwed by his car dealer. Um, you know, who he thinks has always been on the square with him and has given him a really good price, you know, just a little bit over the manufacturer's suggested retail price. And there's a, a series of moments like that where where Hank begins to realize that the system that he has put his faith in is actually not 
a legitimate system or it, it hides a lot of chicanery uh, and fraud and deception and it takes advantage of people. And in a way, I also think, you know, if the show is updated from 2009 going forward, that is going to be a big theme because this is a, or rightly it could be, what has happened to a, not, you know, everyone in America, I, I write a lot about this at Reason, of, you know, if you go back 50 years, that the amount of trust and confidence in major institutions, whether it's the government, whether it's big business, whether it's, uh, you know, kind of third sector groups like the American Way or the Catholic Church, trust and confidence in these institutions has just, you know, continued to go downwards because these institutions have been revealed as fake and fraudulent and self-interested, but kind of making all of us do sacrifice in the name of, you know, their greater glory. And then you find out they're full of shit. I think that's a big part of, you know, the journey that Hank will have been on since we last saw him. And, you know, judge, uh, you know, when you look at um, shows, you know, like office space again, you know, I, I think Mike judge is almost to TV and, and movies, what Bob Dylan is to music. I mean, this guy has like a, you know, a basically like a four decade, legacy of, you know, at least once a decade, just perfectly capturing and parroting and satirizing in a, in a really deep knowing way, what's wrong with America. And in shows like Beavis and Butthead, King of the, King of the Hill, office space captured, you know, a late nineties, um, you know, tech culture, emptiness, idiocracy, which, you know, is slowly being revealed as documentary realism. You know, right. it's just that instead of it being 500 years in the future, it was like, uh, it's like 15 years in the future. And Silicon Valley, you know, just most recently captured this. So, you know, what what happens? Like, can you be Hank Hill in a world where all of your illusions of, you know, that the world is a kind and just place, you know, that's been the, the institutions are not there to support you. Um, you know, what happens next? That's really interesting territory, especially without it becoming very dark. I look forward to much like Bob Dylan, uh, Mike Judge's evangelical Christian reinvention. Oh God, so yeah, that, that should be, be really, really fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like he's only you know a, a second marriage away from that. I suspect. Yeah, and then we'll get the traveling Wilburys sort of rendition where he gets together with all the great comedy writers and they play. Oh, that wouldn't that be great to you know Matt Stone and Trey Parker and and Seth MacFarlane, you know, all in a traveling Wilburys cartoon thing, even if they have a lot of beef amongst each other. And the Simpsons gang, yeah. Can I ask you guys, like, how do you compare? Because, you know, the, the one kind of pop cultural text that has been an absolute mainstay since before the collapse of the Soviet Union is the Simpsons, which is now in its like 800, 800th year or something. Can do you, you know, and, there, and there's interplay between the Simpsons and King of the Hill. Um, each has each characters of each have shown up in the other. How do you, you know, is it worth like thinking about King of King of the Hill in light of The Simpsons, which also made, you know, kind of primetime animation possible again, which is just remarkable, too. I mean, they're both they're both Americana, the roast slices of Americana. They're both no. about the everyman middle class American family. Right. But I think that King of the Hill has one a lot more regional flavor, but two, uh, you know, in neither one do you know exactly where the town is. They're both made up towns, but uh, Springfield is much more like somewhere in America. Arlen is or somewhere everywhere in America. America. Yeah, everywhere yeah, in America. Yeah, That's right. a better one, right? Um, I also just think that like 
King of the Hill is more realistic. These could all, almost not be animation. This could almost be like just real people, you know, live acting this show and it would work just as well. Versus like The Simpsons has that cartoon aspect to it, right? It's yep. still a little bit over the top. It's still a little bit about, uh, it's a little slapstick. It's a little um, fun in that way that I think King of the Hill isn't. And so I think that there are similar shows, but a little bit different. And one of the things that I think is actually worth noting here um, when it comes to realism is that King of the Hill is actually one of the very few um, animated shows, especially I think it might have been the only one at its time that allows its characters to age a bit and allows them to grow and develop in a way that you don't really see um, in shows like The Simpsons. Simpsons was on like decades, right? Decades of Simpsons. And like, yeah, the animation style gets a little bit better, but they're the same family, you know, and that's the, there's that internet meme that goes around where that talks about how like maybe part of the reason that The Simpsons isn't as popular as it used to be is simply because it's not as depictive of what it's like to be an average American family anymore. Um, and I versus I think like Kingley Hill, of course, it's not on the air anymore. It hasn't been for a while, but I think that it always kind of held on to what it was like to be a middle class family in Texas. Right. And it's about observing that world moving forward and, and changing and evolving in a way and what it means to look at it and sometimes feel left behind, but sometimes be mired in this, you know, ever changing, uncertain future. Whereas The Simpsons is just kind of like, it's this weird wibbly wobbly timey wimey locked in place sort of like snow globe of a show. And then you've got shows like, like you mentioned, Beavis and Butthead, which was all about a reaction to the slick packaged like media consumption of the era. And then moving forward, even now, the the big sort of animated series of, I think, that came on after uh, King of the Hill, Family Guy, you know, right. obviously was a post Beavis and Butthead. It was not about what it means to digest all of that media. It's about where you go and, and the sort of base of humor was what that did to people and how you can use jokes via this referential like almost like the only reason i got half the jokes in family guy is because i love the 80s and i love the 70s right. was on vh1 all the time and i could sit yeah. there for six hours on a saturday and be like i understand what life in the 1980s was like um and and so it's interesting to see what king of the hill might turn into uh, in, you know, if we jump forward in time, but if it will keep that element of trying to, you know, understand the world moving forward, but being stuck in the past or, or something like that, or if it will take a new type of perspective and, and sort of uh, way of examining the world. I do, you know, all of these, and I would throw South Park in, of course, as well. Like one thing that is great about the animated shows, and and actually, as long as we're throwing everything in the hopper, Daria, which was kind of an outgrowth of Beavis and Butthead, oh, which right. I've also so heard is getting some kind of update or something, potentially uh, another very Texas show. I mean, it's really <laughs> set in a, a ex, you know, a suburb of McMansions and whatnot, um, but. One thing that I love about the animated shows, probably more than live action shows, is that they really reward close watching and kind of, you know, the second screen phenomenon. Like when you're watching it and you don't know who somebody is that they build an episode around, you know, and, and like you can Google it while you're watching it and you gain that enjoyment. Like 
again, I, I hate pop culture that is didactic. You know, I, I hate like you, you know, this is the old Frankfurt School model of cultural theory, which is, you know, Donald Duck gets his punishment in the movies. So the work, you know, the assembly line worker takes his punishment at the workplace like it. That's not how pop culture works, but it, it enacts and embodies and it kind of conjures all this interesting information. And like what all of these shows did. And I, I thought this was really powerful in the 90s as our world was exploding with so much more information, so many more sources, so, you know, just everywhere. You really benefit from knowing history and from knowing art or even like earlier iterations of the show. I mean, The Simpsons is almost completely self-referential now. It's its own whole universe. And that can become annoying and frustrating after a while. But it, it, it's a good way of thinking about the world like that, you know, when you're walking down the street that you know a lot of everything that's going on and the history of it. Because if you know the history of it, and this is a very Marxist point on a libertarian podcast, but I think it's absolutely right. You know, if you can historicize the current moment and you understand the ways in which we got to the moment we got, that it's not you know, it's not just nature. It's not just the way things happen. It's, you know, happenstance. Things have happened for particular reasons. Once you know that and you understand it and you can reference it, you can maybe direct, you know, things in, in, a, in a way that is hopefully, you know, for all of us, I think, in the direction of kind of freedom and liberty and, and human flourishing. So that's a weird way to think about King of the Hill, but it's like it might be essential to a 21st century that's actually worth living in. I mean, that's kind of the point of the show, right? Like, to some extent, we all kind of do believe that pop culture has the ability to change the way that people think about decisions, think about our government, think about, you know, the way that we live. It's pop and lock with the, with the E. And that's exactly why I, I came up with that name. It was not just because of a pun. That's uh, I totally had that line of thought when we brainstormed the name. It was I hope you purpose. weren't like Popper and Locke or something like that. Carl Popper. <laughs> no, no, no. We never went that far. We never never that far. Okay. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N. Lock with an E like the philosopher pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and please rate and review us if you like the show. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is a project of libertarianism.org and is produced by me, Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.